John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the latest entry in the Men in Black franchise, Men in Black International, all five Shaft movies culminating with the recent release of Shaft 2019, as well as the uh, comedy about late night talk show hosts starring Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling, late night, and the latest from Jim Jarmusch, a uh, tribute to old uh, zombie movies, specifically Night of the Living Dead, The Dead Don't Die. Let's get started. Should we protect the earth? And that means everyone and everything on it. Yeah, baby! We are the men in black. The men and women in black. Yeah, ha. Perfectly done. Are you suggesting that we try the most powerful weapon in the galaxy for fun? Do it. Press the button. Mm. Turn it up if you want. I didn't hate this movie as much as everyone else seemed to. Everyone else seemed to kind of take umbrage with its much more generic nature. And I didn't mind it. I didn't mind that it wasn't at... Like, it... I think it was better than the last two Men in Black movies, to be sure. But, you know, I understand that it's very hard to live up to that initial Men in Black movie. It's it's so perfect in its own way that, the tr that we haven't really had a chance to recapture that magic. And I'll say this about um, Men in Black International. It was a good choice to have um, Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson back and you know back together after Thor Ragnarok because the two have amazing chemistry and uh you know they kind of really carry the film I think the problem was there's all this unnecessary globetrotting which feels much out of which kind of feels out of character for the franchise Men in Black was always centered on one location it was the it was mainly about New York and now making it sort of like an Indiana Jones style, where you know, jumping jumping from uh, city to city, kind of lessens its impact because we're spending so much time going to these new places and you know, world, you know, trying to trying to encompass so many things at once that we kind of lose the intimacy that we got from that first movie. And uh, I think that was kind of a mistake. I think keeping it just in London would have been fine. But, you know, going, for, going to Marrakesh and then going to Paris and then going to Milan or was it Naples? I think it was Naples. But, yeah, jumping all over the place. And it just feels, feels, feels more like a way to, like, showcase, you know, kind of like write, write off travel, you know, expenses rather than something interesting story related, you know. But, but uh, at, you know, at the same point... Um, I didn't hate it as much as people seem to. People are not very people are not fans of this new Men in Black movie, and I, I kind of dig that they're spinning off and allowing for more range than just continually relying on Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. I think expanding the roster is a good idea, you know, and you know the effects are fairly solid for the most part. Um, you know, most of the effects aren't overly, you know, like, like they, they feel like a nice mix of some practical, there is mostly CGI in this, but the CGI doesn't feel, it does feel more polished than in other movies. Uh, I think not, I think having 
you know, more practical stuff would have been nice. But for what it's worth, this was not terrible. Um, once again, I, I, I had fun with it for the most part. It's not like, you know, the best thing I saw this weekend or anything. But, yeah, I mean, considering that we just had two terrible... Se- that we've had two terrible sequels, two Men in Black at this point... This movie is fine. This is a much better follow-up to the first Men in Black than the last two movies have been. And I think all I was missing was, like, a nice, kicky, catchy theme song that the Men in Black franchise has always had. And it feels like it, that was what was missed. And, you know, it wouldn't have made it better, but it would have, you know, been a nice, you know, cherry on top if it had been, you know, to the thing. It's like, oh, hey, here's a nice, catchy theme again, you know? But, uh, I don't know. It just... It definitely felt more corporatized, more watered down, and I get that. But at the same point, I do like Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth. They're fantastic. And, you know, I didn't hate the Kumail... I like the Kumail Nanjiani character, Pawnee. I think he was fun. You know, I like. I just like Kumail Nanjiani. I think he's, I think he's funny. And, um, yeah, it's, it's not amazing. It definitely should have been tighter in the script department and it, and it's fairly predictable you could kind of see where the twist is coming uh from a mile away but yeah for the most part this was fine this was fine by me this is a much better follow-up than either of the two sequels which were just awful and yeah the minute the first man in black is still the best of all of them you know surprise surprise so yeah, nothing much else to really talk about there you know it was it's another big budget hollywood sequel that kind of just skates by on average let me get mine damn you back here having a night fight oh hell no i shot him you damn right what's up If you've been following me on Stardust uh, at Popcorn Junkie, then you'll have then you saw me doing the most recent retrospective. I'm not going to have enough time to do Child's Play in the lead up to this to next week, but because um, that's like I think ten movies all with, all with that initial Junkie or something like that. It's 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 like it's it's a lot. It's like I think the original three plus the two. Okay, no, it's like six, maybe seven. So I'm not going to worry about that too much. But, um, yeah, this past week I did the, uh, John Shaft Big Mother's, bad, no, Bad Mother's Spective over on Stardust, where I watched all five, all four of the previous Shaft movies, and I gotta say, that first Shaft movie, I think, had a better, big, like, the things that have come since that movie are better than the initial movie itself, in retrospect, because as time has gone, as time has passed, that first Shaft movie kind of feels dull. Like, it doesn't... I think it's outshot... I think the problem is I was hearing so many amazing things about Shaft. And, you know, the theme is theme song is iconic. And it's here... And, uh, you know, it's one of the you know influ- most influential, you know, black exploitation movies of all time. And it's just a generic cop movie with Richard Roundtree. And, like, it doesn't... It doesn't... Never really stood out to me while I was watching it. Never, never really, like impacted me and i feel like the pro i think that the hype uh you know o- over the years has kind of 
you know, made it seem bigger than it is. And that first movie is actually just kind of forgettable, ultimately, for me. I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just because it's harder to glean the deeper things from it. And maybe it was the problem is it was breaking ground at the time, but so much that ground has been broken and settled for so long that it doesn't seem as iconic now. And it's harder to appreciate in this day and age. Maybe on rewatch, I'll see something more in it. But for the most part, it was just kind of average to me. And, you know, like it wasn't as campy as later exploitation movie, black exploitation movies specifically uh, were. And it wasn't, but it wasn't as polished or good as a, as a regular movie either. So it was just kind of like, I don't know, maybe, maybe it was the groundbreaking for the time never culminated, you know, didn't, doesn't really help, you know, for later years. Now it just seems mundane. Um, you follow that up with Shaft's big score, which is I, which is in my opinion, the best of the original trilogy, just because it allows for more of those over the top elements from the other, uh, from black exploitation that we know black exploitation for. Um, it's got this crazy over the top story and there's all these double crosses and backstabbing. And it's like crazy. You know, it, it is essentially the idea of J John Shaft as the black James Bond. And, uh, that it allows for more fun, but it's also not great either. Like I, I think, I, I don't know. I'd have to watch more black exploitation to kind of glean where Shaft's big score uh, ends up on, you know, what I think are the best of those. But uh, for this franchise, this Shaft's big score was the one I would rewatch more than the first Shaft. And yeah, I think it's a lot more fun. It's a lot, it's a lot more what you would expect from a black exploitation movie. And that's immediately followed up by the worst in the entire franchise, Shaft in Africa. And if it wasn't clear from, you know, from the idea of taking John Shaft to Africa and fighting the slave trade, this movie was made by white people. This was not made by black filmmakers like the, like the previous ones. This was all whitey's fault. And they thought, well, how do we appeal to the black audience? Well, let's have John Shaft fight modern day slavery, you know. So he, because he's a black icon and he's fighting the, one of the most horrible injustices to face black Americans. Only it's not happening to black Americans. It's happening to stereotypical Africans. You know, you have to show all the tribe, you know, the, like the primitive tribes of Africa and whatnot. And ugh, just everything about this is just trashy in all the worst ways. And then there's, you know, this is the kind of, like, this is the kind of movie that casually drops uh, false rape accusations. One of the plans of the villainess of this movie, who is an infomaniac, is to have the black sort of uh, subservient, not the subservient, but the uh, under underling to uh, the main villain, uh, who is this uh, European evil person i don't get i don't get how this works i don't get how this modern day slave trade works <laughs> but i don't know but uh anyway uh the the black uh sort of uh, uh what are those called um like um 
like basically like the the one the right the right hand man the one the one the work the guy who's in charge under the big boss um the big boss's girlfriend who's an infomaniac and wants to bone john shaft because he's john shaft and wants to do it on tape to cuckold her her boyfriend husband whatever um the uh the the uh black villain says he doesn't want to do this and the woman tells him that if she doesn't help cuckold her husband on tape, that she will claim to her husband that the villain raped her. That's what jo that's what Shaft in Africa gives us. This is the kind of garbage that they thought was cool for this movie. For after the first Shaft was just basically a cop drama sort of thing, you know, like... Um, the private investigator trying to solve a mystery, you know, alongside the police force and dealing with all sorts of, you know, the usual cop drama stuff. Like, it feels like a police procedural. Follow that up with a black, you know, crime fighter sort of much more over-the-top black exploitation movie to slave trade and rape accusations and cuckolding. And it's just like, what the hell even happened? This is what happens when you let Whitey take charge of things. This is what happens. Ugh. Just. This this whole thing is a travesty. And it's a, it's a two it's the longest one at two hours that it did not need to be. Did not need to be two hours. Did not need to be this just garbage. This is what happens when you let people who have no idea what they're doing take charge of a thing. So Shaft in Africa is absolute trash. Don't even bother. Uh after all of that, Shaft was kind of he did have a TV series. Uh Richard Roundtree played Shaft for on TV for a couple of seasons. And then that was kind of uh left to history until John Singleton uh was given the task of of doing a a new Shaft starring Samuel L. Jackson. And this was in 2000, and I don't know much about that production. But Singleton brings Singleton was inspired a lot by black exploitation, specifically the depiction of the black, you know, struggle in the inner city. That's what led to things like that's what led to his movie Boys in the Hood, and so for him to take control of an iconic black exploitation character like Shaft is you know it's it's a nice get for him, and this is my favorite of the franchise personally. Just because, one, Samuel L. Jackson, he's great, but it covers a lot, it wants to be bigger than the previous shafts. It wants to be, um, like, it's tackling race issues, class issues, the police force, you know, some, you know, the legal system, uh, and... Yet, at all, while all that really serious stuff is going on, and Christian Bale is just the most punchable villain in this entire franchise. He is just despicably evil. And, uh, there's a throwaway line that apparently the original, Richard Roundtree comes back in bits, a little, you know, cam for a couple scenes as cameo for, uh, John Shaft's uncle, uh, which I'll talk about, which, um, gets addressed in Shaft's 19. I won't, I won't make it clear, but yeah, they do kind of address that with the whole grandpa thing. Uh, but I think the problem is it doesn't, it won't, it gets to be over the top a lot and campy. And like, uh, Jeffrey Wright plays a Dominican drug kingpin who assists, who kind of teams up with Christian Bale 
and the two of them and like that that's and when when it's dealing with Jeffrey Wright as the Dominican king drug kingpin that's when it gets really crazy and over the top silly and so the the tone will jump from from serious like explore you know tackling of real world issues to wacky crazy act you know black exploitation and the tone is like if it had stuck with a much more crazy tone like not meant to be taken as serious drama that would have been fine but if they had done a serious drama version of shaft i would have been fine with that too but yeah it's i think it the problem with the 2000 shaft is it doesn't set the tone or it sets one tone and then it wants to try and do a different tone and it never quite settles on which tone it prefers and it tries to do both and it kind of diminishes both tones in, in doing so. But I, I still enjoyed it. It's the one I would definitely rewatch again first. Um, and that leads us into the latest Shaft movie, which is brought to us, uh, directed by Tim Story and written by two guys I'm not familiar, not all that familiar with. And this is... This is less black exploitation and just much more action comedy. This is a straight action comedy movie. And the problem is the humor is very lame. Most of the humor deals with millennials and then there's just constant homophobic and then at some point transphobic uh, drops. And it's just, it reeks of old dudes who have no idea how to be funny in this day and age. Because, like, there's a way to be funny, and then, you know, while while not being, you know, derogatory towards various groups. And I get that they're not, you know, they're trying to be just offensive for the sake of being offensive, and sometimes that's some dude's way of being funny, South Park and Family Guy. But, ultimately, it's just... It, the, the, the humor is not working for... does not work for me... And if it were better comedians, they that it being a comedy would have been fine. But you know, Samuel L. Jackson and Regina Hall are basically carrying this. Jesse T. Usher is not is just basically being the nerdy black guy who who get you know, grows a pair by the end of it. But yeah, this has this weird chip against how unmanly you know it's it's a lot of um, real man gatekeeping going on. Um, and then, like, but I will say, like, the three, when the three iterations of Shaft fight at the end, it's it's great. Um, they have a lot of chemistry together. Roundtree, Jackson, and Usher work great off of each other. Uh, but, yeah, Usher, you know, him being the, ner- the ner- you know, the nerdy black guy who who's not used to being a, quote, real man, it, 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 it doesn't really work for me. Uh, I think it's just, I think it feels like it's really dated. It really dates the humor. It feels like the humor is like 10, 20 years behind what's funny now. And, uh, not to mention the fact that there's this really bad sound mixing where the dialogue is completely drowned out by the soundtrack. And it's, and it just is ultimately not very good, not very rewatchable for me. As good as Sam Jackson is, and as you know, much as much as I seeing him return to the John Shaft role is good is fun. It, this one does not work for me as well. Uh, not to mention the fact that Migos, I, was it Migos? 
I want to say it was Migos. Whoever did the uh, theme, the cover theme for uh, the new Shaft. Let's see, da 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 da. Does not say. Does not say. If it's not Migos, they definitely are 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 co-oping the style of Migos, and it's like you have this iconic one of the best movie themes of all time and you drown it out with modern day hip-hop sludge and then you don't talk and then you just mumble your way through random ra like i was talking to my nephew about this the problem isn't that they didn't that they did a the problem isn't that they used the shaft theme and they ruined it the problem is that they could have easily like, hip-hop didn't ruin the Shaft theme. In fact, I think the Shaft theme was, was has probably been sampled in hip-hop before. But it's not a fitting tribute. Because the tribute barely comes in, comes in at all. And it just sounds like another generic song by the, by the Migos. You know, it sounds like a second-rate Migos song. It doesn't sound like their best either. Like, it doesn't sound like Stir Fry. It doesn't sound like, um... Oh god, what's the one they do with Gucci Mane? Um, you know, it doesn't sound, but it doesn't sound like their best work. It sounds like their lazy work where they where they aren't trying. And like, if they had done um, like a Kendrick Lamar or um, or a Lupe Fiasco, maybe um, uh, you know, there are various hip hop artists working today who could take the Shaft theme as the sample. And then build on it to make a new Shaft theme that's fitting. Here it's just sound like Migos are popular. Let's have them do the theme. Okay, they play a clip from the from the Shaft theme and then just go into standard Migos crap. And that's the thing. I don't hate Migos. I don't think they're bad. I just do think that they rely on. They don't really put a lot of effort into some of their stuff. And it's when they do that they sound their best, like with Surfry. I think Stir Fry is a lot more, you know, it's a lot more, there's a lot more effort put into it instead of just, you know, putting, like, the beats in place and then just mumbling stuff over it, and, you know, repeat, a lot of repetition. It just feel, feels lazy. It's, that's more their early stuff, like Versace and Hannah Montana. But, you know, lately they've been, they've been expanding more and being more interesting artists but like Bad and Bougie, I'm not. I don't think it's that great. It's like it's just kind of, you know, low key, kind of forgettable music to me. It doesn't. It doesn't. I don't remember it at all. But yeah, this and this theme doesn't just made me maybe just walk out the theater faster. Just like okay, we're done here. Like I, I, once again, that that if you're covering, not even covering, just if you're using the initial Shaft theme. Shouldn't that like be a, a, a like the main sample that you fo focus on, and then you're adding be little beats to it, remixes to it, and then you're adding new lyrics talking about Shaft, and just, instead of just like there's some some Shaft, 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 we're doing a Shaft theme now, whatever. Do we get paid yet? You know, I don't know. Just I did not care much for this new Shaft. I feel like it misses the point of what made Shaft great. You know, and the only saving grace is pretty much Samuel L. Jackson, so. That's why my nephew likes it. He loved it so much just because he likes Samuel L. Jackson, and Samuel L. Jackson is great in this. It's just the movie around him sucks.
I actually didn't need to go anywhere. That doesn't matter. This is how white saviors work. Into the cab. How would you describe Molly? Molly? Molly is... She said that I reminded her of a younger, younger her. Younger me. I mean... Molly! 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 Molly, over here! This was actually supposed to come out last week. Uh, I think it came out in, like, a more limited release last week, and now it's gotten its wider release. But uh, Late Night, uh, written by Mindy Kaling. Uh, I don't know who the director is. Uh, hold on. Let me pull up. There we go. Late Night, directed by... I didn't recognize her name. Uh, Nisha... Nisha Ganatra. Uh, not very familiar with her. Let's see. Chutney Popcorn, Yumi, Her. Oh, she's worked on Transparent and Code Academy. So she's worked on some TV, directed TV, episodes of TV, um, mostly. She did an episode of Mr. Robot, uh, TV movies, but mostly TV director. Um, but, uh, yeah, she, this is her, like, latest major motion picture. Uh, oh, she studied with Spike, studied under Spike Lee, Martin Scorsese, and Barbara Koppel over at uh, NYU Film School. So, I mean, like... She's a very, you know, cl classically trained sort of film, film uh, director, but most of her stuff has been for TV. And then this is this will be her kind of biggest release, because like she had Chutney Popcorn in nineteen ninety nine, which is her first film, and then she's done mostly TV since then, um, which was kind of like her thing, where it's just like. Her starring, directing, writing, and uh, ever since, it's since then, it's been mostly episodes of TV. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Future Man, Fresh Off the Boat, Dear White People, You Me, Her, uh, Transparent, Big Time Rush, Unfabulous. But, uh, yeah, she, um, she does good in it. Like, the directing is very solid. I think she is, uh... Very capable director, and I'm interested to see if she does more film or if she sticks with TV, whatever, uh, you know, whichever she feels best suited to. Um, but uh, this movie is very close to my pick of the week. It would have been my pick of the week, except for the next one we'll talk about, but as it is definitely one of the best comedies of the year, right up there with Longshot. It um, has great chemistry between Kaling and Emma Thompson. It tackles some real issues within the comedy entertainment business. And I'm curious how much of this was inspired by Kaling's own um, rise to prominence as a comedian. And because, like, you think of her, she started off mainly through The Office and then has kind of risen to these different things. And you wonder how much of... Uh, the char her character story in Late Night was inspired by her own experiences. Because, I mean, yeah, you are dealing with a lot of, Har you know, Harvard, Ivy League level educated writers. And it's all white dudes. It's all kind of, a there's even a reference to, like, uh, nepotism, you know, because your daddy, your dad's in league, you know, in, in league with the uh, president of the network, then you have an in, as it were. 
But um, yeah, there's just a lot of really great jokes in this. The great timing. Kaling has amazing comedic timing. And uh, Emma Thompson and John Lithgow specifically are great at delivering those jokes. Lithgow is just a he's just a damn treasure, you know? He's amazing. And I, I love seeing it. Whenever I see him pop up, I'm like, oh, yay! You 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 got your Lithgow! We got Lithgow! Uh, I think the biggest problem with this was, while the message was good, and while the comedy was great, the story wasn't as tight. I feel like you could have tightened up on the story... Because it felt like it went, there were these superfluous plot threads that didn't really go anywhere. And it just ended up working to try to world build, I guess. Like there's a niece character or something that only shows up twice in the movie. And makes me wonder who she is. Why she's only in these two scenes. Why she was never really established. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't, that doesn't feel like it was established before it came into the movie. But uh, overall... The uh, story, yeah, the story is probably the weakest bit, just because it kind of follows where do you think it would go for the most part. But the laughs are great. The laughs are phenomenal. So as a storyteller, Kaling still needs some work. But as a comedian, you know, she's nailing it. She's nailing it. Just absolutely just out of the park with a lot of these jokes. And I, I, I definitely recommend you go see Late Night if you haven't yet. Um, specifically because, one, Emma Thompson is a treasure as well. Plus John Lithgow. Plus Kaling is re- really funny in this. And supporting cast isn't as memorable. But, you know, as, as a sort of... if you're Especially if you have any familiarity with the way the entertainment business, especially like the comedy business is done, you'll, you can get a lot out of this movie. It, it really is a, 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 one of the best of 2019 in terms of comedy. Excuse me. Those are some pretty good cuts. You played some minor league ball, didn't you? Well, um, a little class A. It was a long time ago. I guess I should say Shaft 2019 is my unpopped kernel because I don't exactly recommend people go see it. My pick of the week, however, is one that a lot of people aren't fans of. Uh, a lot of people seem to be not into this movie. And I can't say I blame them. Because this movie is weird, man. Uh, and I knew that going in. I knew it was going to be weird. I knew Jarmusch is a weird dude. I knew he's he's got a unconventional style to him. So I knew it was going to be weird. And yet, I got so much enjoyment out of this movie. Like, my nephew was a lot more put off by it. Uh, he and I did a triple feature. Uh... Shaft, Dead Don't Die, and Men in Black. Uh, in that order, those were his favorites. He liked Shaft the most, then Dead Don't Die, then Men in Black. He he liked Men in Black the least, uh, so he's much more in line with what the con- you know the consensus is. But personally, the Dead Don't Die is my pick of the week. That is, uh, I mean, it's that's the thing. This movie is not very well made. But part of me wonders how much of it is on purpose. Because I know Jarmusch. I know he can do standard deliveries and whatnot. I think he's allowing for more awkwardness and more weirdness to come, to pay tribute to how these old zombie movies were made. 
and it does play like a cheap B movie <laughs> a lot and it is super weird and I I love that part about it like there's these weird bits where it breaks the fourth wall for no reason and it's it's like driver has this great deadpan delivery throughout the whole movie and bill murray is great throughout it <laughs> he's, he's got that sardonic wit about it, and then every so often he'll just lose his his crap uh danny glover is solid uh buscemi it doesn't get a whole lot to do but he's you know he's he's a fun little character in his own right um the guest stars are the are the most fun. You got uh, Carol Kane and Iggy Pop as zombies. Tom Waits as this hobo who lives out in the woods. <laughs> it's just like, oh god, it's so weird. You, I think I love it because I'm probably never gonna see anything else like this. I just love stuff like that, which it's like, okay, there's, I'm never gonna see anything else like this. Hollywood's not gonna give me something like this. Only Jim Jarmusch could have given me something like this. Uh... So yeah, um, the premise follows your basic zombie plot line. The you know here they're actually he makes sure to emphasize the fact that it's fracking that's causing the zombie apocalypse. And in the in the past week, there was an actual earthquake in Ohio brought about by fracking. So having a zombie movie where the villains are the whole re impetus for the apocalypse was douchebag energy companies fracking and then trying to cover up their the fact that they screwed everything up and in the name of profit yeah that's fitting that is fitting but yeah just all, all overall this whole movie was a trip and i loved everything about it and yet i'm also willing to admit that the movie does drag its feet a bit whether it's intentional or not, given it's a zombie movie. But I feel like if you cut 10 to 15 minutes off, it would have been even, it could have been even, I think it would have been perfect. But, yeah, it's, it's off-putting, and it's not conventional, and it's weird. And that's why I love it. I love stuff like this, and um, uh, Swiss Army Man, and it's just like, yo, uh, sorry to bother you, where it's just like, when am I ever going to see anything else like this? Hollywood's not going to give this weirdness to me. I need to get it from somewhere. So yeah, The Dead Don't Die is not my favorite zombie movie, but it's definitely a great tribute to them all. I, I highly recommend you check it out, especially if you're into weird stuff like me. This is at the kind of weirdness that I can really get into. So yeah, that I think that covers all the reviews for this week. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about, in since I covered all of the Shaft movies, we're going to be talking about what birthed Shaft. We're going to be talking about exploitation. Into every generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world. A chosen one. And alongside her are the Watchers. We are the Watchers. Once More with Feeling is a 20th anniversary Buffy fancast where we gather and watch episodes of Buffy, discuss them, and release it every Tuesday. Grr. Arg. I feel like I 
should preface this with I'm very clearly not an expert on this topic, but I did, but it's always been a fascination to me. So I definitely recommend you go seek out, um, you know, more detailed explanations for uh, the origins and the implications and the uh, impact of the of this genre uh, through much more uh, researched and better um but you know better sourced and better you know just better all around uh i can't remember words but basically yeah there are better sources for information about uh this genre but for a basic understanding this kind of rose out of the very very prominent lack of representation in, in Hollywood, specifically in films. And in the early 70s, specifically 1971, you had um, Melvin Van Peebles. He made a movie that uh, by himself, I believe. Hold on, let me... What was it? It was called Sweet Sweetbacks Badass with uh, five or six S's song and here we go um that was um he was a star writer and director for it and it's about um um male prostitute who goes on the run from the cops after he saves a black panther member from some racist cops and it's basically him melvin van peebles starring as uh this um as sweetback and his dealings with these racist john amos is in it uh his son mario van peebles plays a younger version of him and you know it's it's sort of this you know, independent, I believe. Hold on, let me see if there's any... Oh, God, they rated it X. <laughs> you bled my mama, you bled my papa, you won't bleed me. And as far as I can tell, yeah, it was this, this independent production. But it tacked into the, the zeitgeist at the time, which was the Black Power movement that was, that was gaining in prominence throughout the 60s. And... Between that and Shaft, which was a uh, these two movies that broke new ground in representing black men on film and their str- and struggles within the black community, specifically on how they had to deal with racist cops and how it was always the man kind of holding them down. And they, these two kind of served as the impetus for a long line of movies throughout the 70s starring black characters and their struggles against the man. And they would either be set in the inner city, uh, or sometimes they would set it during slavery or Jim Crow era in the South to kind of, once again, showcase these black characters and the black struggle. And exploitation was just black-centric exploitative movies. So these were all B-movies that had various settings. You had horror with like things like Blackula. You had... Um, 
you know, comedies, musicals, action, romance, all sorts of other genres were featured here. The whole point is that these were done on the cheap, starred black characters and black actors, and dealt with black issues. And you also, and so you also have, since it's being basically initially made by black filmmakers for black audiences, you would also, this was also the first, um, genre to feature soul and uh, funk music in the soundtrack. Hollywood never touched uh, black music other than, like, they would touch a uh, watered-down version of rock and roll for, uh, you know, the 60s stuff. But it would... But true black music never really got featured in Hollywood production. So here's funk music and soul music and the things that black audiences were listening to at the time featured in the movie... featured in movies starring other black starring black actors as the leads it was a very very empowering thing especially early on it dealt specifically with black power the black power movement which was a so a much a you know, very inspired by marxist ideology and thinking of tearing down the current system because the capitalist system only served to exploit the exploit the black man um this is a very rudimentary understanding. This isn't, you know, they're much... You, I definitely recommend reading into the Black Power Movement and the Black Panthers and that whole era for a better understanding of their... Uh, but that was my understanding, is that Black Power seeded to empower black the Black community by tearing down the system that's holding them down. And then later on, black exploitation movies would kind of ease up on that aspect of Black Power and more favor of empowering within the capitalist system through nefarious means mostly drug dealers and pimps were seen as the heroes now because they were making money despite the man and and that's sort of why the NAACP was very anti black exploitation uh they saw it as 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 exemplifying all of the negative stereotypes that white uh people would have of black people you know, that they're pimps and drug dealers and they're criminals and they're just, you know, they're all the negative stereotypes being empowered. And what was seen as a dig against the man in order to fight their power by undermining their authority was seen by the NAACP and by other um, black uh, organizations as just feeding into those stereotypes and not truly being empowering. It's a shallow empowerment. It's giving them the feeling of power without giving them the um, respect of that power. And, and not the respect, but like the depth of that, of, of true power, which is what, you know, corporations and deep-seated money has in this in the current system. And not to mention the fact that there are a lot of critics who saw it as exploiting the audience who never saw any of the benefits from the profits made on these movies, especially once white filmmakers started to tap into that. Once other, once you saw black exploitation movies being made by white producers, white uh, production companies, none of that profit ever went back to the community. And... It's further exploiting the audience by taking their money and running off with it and never returning, you know, returning that investment to the community. And, you know, so you not only do you have the violence, the you know, the criminality, not to mention the ex sexual exploitation between pimp active, you know, the, the positive portrayal of pimps, but also just the 
just the full, you know, all of the sexual exploits using black women as just, you know, sexual exploitations themselves, depending on the movie, you know, unless it's a, unless it's dealing with black women empowerment and things, uh, featuring, um, oh God, she was just, she was just in Palms, um, Pam Greer, no, Pam Greer was later, Pam Greer was in the Jackie Brown, um, no, but... No, she started in the 70s, right? Am I am I missing something? No, she was, yeah, it was 1949. Um, Jackie Brown. Da, 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 da. But didn't she get her start in the 70s? Women in Cages, Big Dollhouse, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, The Twilight People, The Big Bird Cage, Black Mama, White Mama, Coffee. I was, I was right. Foxy Brown, Sheba Baby. Yeah, so she was Pam Greer, you know, unless it was, um... Something like that, where it was about a black woman specifically overcoming, and then the sexual sexuality portrayed was on her terms. More often than not, black women in, and women in general in black exploitation movies were just seen as conquests. And that's just the problem with just exploitation movies as a whole. They're cheap, and they get off on the sex. You know, just cheapo sex. They're You know, some of them can be just glorified softcore. And so... What ultimately happened was not only did the whole thing just become watered down and uh, just uh, the same tropes over and over again, not only was it under more scrutiny, but if, it, if audiences still clamored for it, that one, the scrutiny wouldn't have been an issue. But ultimately, you know, audiences just kept seeing that they were paying for the same movie over and over again. And so... They weren't seeing vari real variety. They weren't seeing real growth in the genre. And so it ultimately kind of became archaic. And by the end of the 70s, people were losing interest in it entirely. But the impact of black exploitation continued on through not only film, uh, but also hip-hop. A lot of um, hip-hop, specifically artists like 50 Cent and Snoop Dogg, a lot of gangsta rap was did take inspiration from not only the the funk music being used in the soundtracks but also the imagery of these people fighting against the the man the power through through uh whatever means necessary in their case by breaking the law through drug dealing and pimping so pimps began gained a lot of notoriety through black exploitation and hip hop kind of continued that onward especially gangster rap from the late from the 90s through the 2000s and even now like you look at guys like Migos and um uh Two Chains and all Young Thug all of these guys ha that mentality was all carried over from black exploitation's depiction of these criminals as the heroes and and unfortunately, it's hard to tell them that they're wrong when this when they've proven that they can't when it's been proven that they can't really succeed within the system. So why so when you're guaranteed success by being a criminal, why would you deny them that success and force them to live in poverty within the system itself? So I mean, I there's a very there's a very thin line with what with whether or not this is a good thing or a bad thing because empowerment is good but empowerment can lead you to being the bad guy you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions so a sort of thing and 
So it's hard to say about the deeper implications of the negative, you know, these the positive portrayals of negative people, of, of just vile, inhuman people in terms of like exploitative, exploitation of women, of addicts, and just, you know, profiting off of the disenfranchised and whatnot. It's almost, you know, a, it's almost a way to speak to the genre itself when it start it became more exploitative the more it exploited the people who were disenfranchised and as it was portraying these neg- what are no- most you know most notoriously bad people as the heroes at the same time could you couldn't you say the same thing about goodfellas or the godfather you know these mafiosos are terrible people they're murderers they're they deal with a lot of them deal with narcotics and all sorts of just things that ruin people's lives but they're the heroes, so why is it bad when, when black filmmakers and you know when black people do it, but everyone calls it the best movie ever when it's Italians, why you know specifically white guys? So I I can understand that implication. So why are you criticizing the these the portrayal of criminals in black movies when it's done in? The, with the mafia, it's considered high art. There's there's a definite dichotomy there, and there's a definite you know double standard but you know to be seen. But I think the ultimate problem was it was just done so cheap, and it never really evolved into something more than itself, and it, it never became a full fledged genre that could last outside of its immediate popularity. Although its style and its Im- and the tropes of it did carry on not you know like i mentioned through hip-hop but also tarantino was a big fan has been a big fan of it that's why he made jackie brown that's why so many of his movies have have he he made django unchained which is a black exploitation movie essentially and uh john singleton was inspired by it. he made more dramatic films but they definitely the, the social struggles and the depictions of the black struggle definitely inspired him in his career spike lee very, very clearly inspired by black exploitation, but when once again to cover a more cover these topics in a more serious, dramatic fashion rather than in an exploitative fashion. So you have these filmmakers who were very clearly inspired by black exploitation, but wanted to evolve the genre. And every so often, you do also have you know things like Pootie Tang or Black Dynamite, you know, Undercover Brother, where they're parodies. Of they get all the fun of it, but play, play the negative tropes of a negative aspect of it for laughs. Play you know address the issues of the genre and make fun of it. And so you have a lot of fun, you know there's there's a way to do black exploitation that's fun and you know comedic and and you know carry over those tropes and those style elements. And I guess you could say black exploitation never really died off, but its prominence has been much more much smaller. More, much more uh, niche. And that begs the question, is there a modern-day equivalent to black exploitation? What is the modern-day black exploitation? And my immediate go-to is Tyler Perry, not so much for, like, the, you know, the normal tropes of, like, inner city, uh, you know, pimps and drug dealers and cops and the struggles of against the man. More so the cheapness and the catering to the audience. Tyler Perry is giving black audiences 
movies that they can enjoy, starring them, made by them, and he's and unlike the original black exploitation movies, he's giving much more back to the community uh, through his Tyler Perry productions. He has devote you know he has helped make Atlanta a, a you know a hotbed for film making you know by allowing for more uh, you know by making so much of his movies there he's made his I'm assuming his hometown uh, much more prominent of a filmmaking spot and. You know, at the same time, not all of his movies are great. They're all done cheaply for the most part, and they all cater to the fact that just they're catering to black audiences. You know, it's all about catering to the black audience for the most part. You know, that's not to say that they're bad, but that's what I think of when I think of current day black exploitation. It's made exclusively catered to black to the black audience, done cheaply, and not concerned about the and it's still technically kind of a B movie. I mean, Tyler Perry, for the most part, doesn't make A movies. He makes basically B movies. And that's not to say that they're that they're bad or that the audience shouldn't enjoy them, but that's what it is. And I, I'm sure other uh, critics and other, you know, film people would probably agree with me that that's kind of, you know, a technically black exploitation, just not in the stylistic form that we think of. At the same point, we are also seeing remakes and references to black exploitation even this year, even within the past years. Uh, Superfly got a remake last year, and Proud Mary was very steeped in black exploitation, especially in the marketing, even though it didn't ultimately deliver. Uh, as, for, as far as I can tell, black exploitation is getting better production as time goes on, but it's lost that innate style to it. It's lost that, you know, the only one who's ever, you know, clearly had a style to him was Tyler Perry. And everything else kind of doesn't have a lot of the memorability that so many exploitation films have. The, you know, they doesn't have a lot of the things that make it stand out. It's just, you know, it's prominently, predominantly black cast and, fi and usually filmmakers, although sometimes there can be white filmmakers and writers involved. Uh, but the over-the-topness is gone. It's sort of played down and and not as and not as like crazy anymore. And I think that's kind of made it less memorable. Like Proud Mary should have gone farther, I think, and that would have made it really memorable and fun. I don't think it went far enough. Like the trailers made it look like it did, and I think that's the main issue is that it stuck around by basically being un low key, but you could all you know. The way to be memorable is to stand out and do something crazy, you know, which is why I think um, something like, you know, like Black Dynamite. It's a full-on recreation of how silly old 70s black exploitation was or things like um, Undercover Brother. Like, it's not the best film ever, but you remember it. You remember how silly and goofy and over-the-top it is. And I think that's what's missing in modern day black exploitation is we need more of that, at least from my perspective. Um, once again, if if you are a fan of black exploitation, if you you know are if you are, have more knowledge of the backstory and the leading up to it, if I've gotten anything wrong, feel free to let me know. I would love to hear you know relate your thoughts on this topic um, next episode. But yeah, that, that basically black exploitation is a genre of, uh, that I've admired, but never got the chance to get into, and I'm hoping to change that soon. Um, 
Jordane Searles, I talked with her. Uh, she been she got the chance to see Coonskin, which is some which is like the lo- for me the lost Ralph Bakshi movie. I never n- knew how to find it. I could find Wizards, I could find Heavy Traffic, I could find um, uh, American Pop, all of these other movies. I could find Fire and Ice, but I could never find Coonskin. And it's available through Brown Sugar, I believe, on Amazon. And I think I'm gonna look into that and start getting into some of the old black exploitation movies and check them start checking them out getting get a better idea of where my where my tears are with the, with the genre but uh yeah if you have if you're much more steep in the genre than i am and you want to share your thoughts please do at uh popcorn podcast at gmail.com and i'll talk about it next episode uh as for now uh, i think it's about time we head on to the next segment with the box office report and now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. I'm actually managing to get this on time, so the sh- these ac- numbers should be as accurate to the weekend as they are. They're not. We're not adding in the extra days of Monday, Tuesday, whatever. So uh, looking at the top seven, um, Ma dropped out, as did Avengers End. No, Avengers Endgame was already out. Uh, Ma dropped out, and John Wick Chapter 3 dropped out. The Dead Don't Die barely even cracked the top 10, which is expected. But um, looking at the top current top 7 now, we've got Godzilla King of the Monsters, which brought in $8.1 million over the weekend, making its current gross $93.6 million, and worldwide $339.4 million. Doubled its budget, now it's starting to get profitable, so thank you, the foreign markets, for helping the, bo- helping the big G out. Um, although a hundred million dollars domestically isn't too bad. It's just, it take it took a while for people to make that money, make that number up. It, and it didn't, you know, it cost so much that it definitely, de- uh, depended on the foreign markets to make back the money. Premiering at number six this week was Shaft 2019, brought in $8.3 million, uh, making its current, and, uh, da, 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 let me take a look, see if the, its budget was 30 to 35. Oof, that's a rough one. We'll see if it can make back some of that money over the next couple of weeks, but as an opening weekend, barely making a third of your money back is not a good sign. But uh, So um, I'm thinking probably just word of mouth probably got out that people, this wasn't very good, so people weren't interested. Plus, I mean, that's the thing. Like, you could say, well, who would want a Shaft movie nowadays? Now's the perfect time for a Shaft movie. It's just they went about it the wrong way. Staying at number five was Rocket Man, which brought in $8.8 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $66.1 million, and its worldwide gross now $133.1 million. Wildly successful on a $40 million budget, so got another successful musical biopic on our hands. Very good pr- crowd pleaser. Uh, dropping from two to four is Dark Phoenix, brought in $9 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to $51.7 million. And it's worldwide gross up to $204.1 million, which I want to say breaks it even. Let me take a look. See if Wiki has it. Yeah, basically it's broken even, finally. And it's only thanks to the world world market, you know, the global market place. And it took, what, two weeks? Let me see. How long has it been in the... Yeah, it took two weeks for it to break even. So, not a good sign, but... Yeah, well, it was the tail end of the X-Men under Fox, so, yeah. Uh, staying at number three is Aladdin, which brought in $16.7 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $263.4 million, and its worldwide gross up to $726.4. Just another wild, successful movie. 
live action remake. People love this crap, so don't expect it to go anywhere soon. Uh, dropping from one to two was Secret Life of Pets 2, bringing in $23.8 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $92 million, and its worldwide gross up to $154.4 million. Another success for Illumination. Do things on the cheap, and if people like it, then you're in, then you then you make all the more profit. And then premiering at number one this past weekend was Men in Black International with twenty eight point five million dollars, and uh, its worldwide gross over uh, over its opening weekend was one hundred two point two million. So just barely made back its money opening weekend. I'm expecting the foreign markets to carry this one as well. I think that name has more clout overseas than it does over here. We'll see. And we'll see how that follows this up. It's definitely an improvement over the last two sequels, so we'll see how, where the Men in Black go from here. Uh, that about does it for the week that was, so now we take a look to the week ahead in Trailer Talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. We've got a very eclectic mix this coming weekend. Uh, first off, the big release this weekend is going to be the latest entry in the Toy Story franchise, despite the perfect ending we had last time, but, you know, gotta make that money somehow. Anyway, uh, at the same point, like, Toy Story 4 does not look as bad. So, uh, let's take a look at that last trailer. Woody? Why am I alive? <gasps> You oh, great existentialism a in a Toy Story movie. You belong to Bonnie. These are your friends. Oh, Woody, I have a question. Um, well, actually, not just one. I have all the questions. Everyone to Pixar to as to why this exists. Vacation! You need help with that. No, no, I got it. I know, this is a little strange, but we all have to make sure nothing happens to Forky. Woody! So wait, is is Forky suicidal? Is Forky suicidal? Because if they include that in the kids' movie, I'm gonna I'm gonna freak the hell out. Let's go save a spork. Do I need to be worried? Well, my guys are veterans. They'll hang in there. On my way, Woody. On June 21st. Duke Kaboom, Canada's greatest stuntman. Oh, yeah. Huh? He's posing. Yeah. Duke, we need Hold to... on. One more. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Huh? Whoa! Woody will save me. Playtime. That guy my whole life. Two days. Is over. <gasps> Is that how we look on the inside? There's so much fluff. Oh, good body horror! What is this movie? That's gonna be quite a jump for you and Duke. For me? Let's kaboom. That's where Forky is being kept. How do we get that key? What about the old plush rush? There you go. Oh, where did you two come from? <laughs> okay, I like that. I like that. It's just, I like that. It's just like what, what, what? Are you, what the? 
so yeah, um, I'm very interested to see how this turns out. It could go either way, but yeah, um, Toy Story 4, it's a very odd bag. Uh, you've got these weird, mature themes, like existentialism and you know why you exist and then why do you even exist and that it's just like silly goofiness with like the key and peel characters so we'll see how it all turns out uh in the, in the final cut uh next up is uh the child's play remake which it's crazy to think that it's all coming back and, you know it's all that that franchise is back now so let's take a look at that new trailer Hi, Aubrey Plaza. It's crazy to think of you as the mom now. Oh, good. The Internet of Things. This could. There's no way this could possibly go wrong. Orion is bankrupt now. From the producers of It. This summer, time to play. You better tell me something's wrong with Chucky. Prepare to meet your new best friend. Yeah, the new design doesn't look as, like, I don't think I would buy the new Chucky doll over the old one, like, as an actual doll, kid's toy doll, but, um, you know, Mark Hamill, seriously? Like, yeah, perfect. I love it. Um, I'm very interested to see how it turns out. It could go either way at this point, but yeah, I'm very, it, tapping into the internet of things is the perfect choice for a horror movie like this, so I'm very interested to see how this turns out. And the last new release is the latest from Luc Besson. Um, yet another Black Widow movie before Marvel finally makes its Black Widow movie. We've got Anna. Let's take a look. It's quite the fairy tale you got going on here. From top flight model in Moscow to rubbing shoulders with the elite. What was the nature of your Hi, Killian Murphy. Like Phil and Kong? You entered this hotel at 1.37 p.m. Did you notice anything suspicious? Like what? From the creator of Lucy. Yeah, not the best sell. And the professional. See, that's a much better sell. Look at the hotel security covers. Tapes were raised. Looks like we're dealing with pros. 
I'm very nervous about this. If this goes Hibachi style, then it's gonna be terrible. But if it manages to go John Wick style and hold on to the uh, action for an, for long enough to, for us to catch up, then this could be great. How did you do that? Hi, Helen Mirren. This June. Your next target is in Paris. There'll be no backup. Any questions? Which room? What do you want most in the world? You'll never make it out of here. Is that Luke Evans again? Holy crap, I think that's Luke Evans. Hi. What's your name? Anna. Sasha Luss. Uh, yeah, Luke Evans is just popping up in things now. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I have, I'm trepidatious about that. I'm cautiously optimistic. I think Sasha Luss is going to be fine as a, as a, as a newcomer, but I'm more concerned about Luke Besson because he's been a lot more missed than hit with me lately. So we'll see about, um, how it turns out in the final cut, but. I'm really hoping for something more like John Wick and something less like every other generic action movie where just we cut everywhere we cut every few seconds like it's a damn music video so that nobody can see what's really going on and we can hide the fact that our actors have no idea what we're doing and we didn't hire a good stunt choreographer. Oh well. We'll see about that. So that's what's coming up this week, and that means we're about done with this week's episode, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep updated on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to whitelist us on your ad blocker and and favorite us on your web browser. And that way you can check out all of our other fine programming. Pretty soon, the um, this month's Living in the Stacks will be out once I can get the time to edit it all down. Uh, so that will be we'll be covering Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. So we're going to be talking a lot about philosophy and traveling and whatnot. So... Uh, Get, you know, prepare for that uh, coming soon. And then uh, be sure to check all of Donna's stuff out at the Starcast. Once more with Feeling, uh, The Family Business, uh, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, all of that. And if you yourself are a podcaster and you want to join our little family, you know, send all your inquiries to gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Uh, if you're listening to us on your various mobile devices uh, on the go, you can find us on uh, Apple Podcasts. It's not, no longer iTunes. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio, and be sure to leave a five-star rating and review. Let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. Uh, if you want to, once again, if you want to share the uh, podcast on your various social media, we're on uh, Facebook at uh, Popcorn Junkie, facebook.com slash Popcorn Junkie, at Corn Junkie Pod on Twitter, at uh, Popcorn Junkie Podcast on Instagram. Uh, at Popcorn Junkie on Stardust, uh, at Corn Junkie Pod, I believe, as well, on Letterboxd, if you want to see the written reviews of movies leading and catch up on my lists uh, for the major retrospectives. I didn't do one for Shaft, just because there's only five entries. But, uh, yeah, basically it's Shaft in Africa, 2019, Shaft, Shaft's Big Score, and Shaft 2000. That's that's basically all you need to know for the Shaft Bad Mother Spective. But... Um, yeah, and then if you want to say anything else to the podcast, you can uh, send your thoughts on Blaxploitation, on the movies I reviewed. 
Um, if you have a difference of opinion, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. Leave an explicit uh, note in either the subject line or the message that says you give me permission to read it out on the podcast, and I will do so. Otherwise, I'll simply paraphrase and get back to you privately. Um, and then if you want to support the show as well, you can do so through patreon.com at uh, patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. And uh, there's a Pinecast tip jar as well if you don't want to donate, uh, if you want to donate just once uh, to support the show. Both of those links should be in the description of this episode. So that about that should do it for us for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and I think I'm finally getting back in the swing of things. No promises yet. song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to... Oh, man. Uh, Get it right one of these days.